Well, tonight let's look at Romans chapter 5. I told you this morning uh, that uh, we're going to look at a particular subject. You know, why is it that some people who really love the Lord, they want to do what's right, they have a heart for God, uh, they embrace seemingly good terminology, and yet somehow victory in Jesus seems to escape them. So, what's wrong? I want to ask you tonight, what or who is your focus? Beyond that, what do you really believe? I'm not asking what you say you believe. I'm asking what you really believe. Because all these things matter. So let's look tonight at Romans chapter 5. This is the bridge between the gospel to sinners in Romans 1 through 5, justification by grace through faith, and then the gospel to saints, which is Romans 6 through 8, uh, sanctification by grace through faith. So this is the connecting uh, passage between those two aspects of the gospel. So let's look at this tonight. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to begin to read in verse 17. The scripture says, For if by one man's offense... Death reign. Now notice we got the word reign here. It's going to occur a number of times. Rule has dominion by one. Much more. There's a contrast. They which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign. There it is. Rule have dominion in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made, that's the word constituted, sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made. There's the same word, constituted, righteous. What does that mean? Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Did you notice the purpose of the law? It is not to empower us to obey it. It is to show us when we disobey it. <laughs> and we must understand the purpose of the law. As Timothy tells us, the law is uh, not for the righteous, it's for the unrighteous. Fascinating. So let's read on. Over the, uh, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace, <laughs> that spirit enablement did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned, ruled, had dominion unto death, even so might grace Spirit enablement, that supernatural enablement through the Holy Spirit, grace, reign, rule, have dominion through righteousness unto, which is literally the word into, eternal life. Thus accessing the eternal life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let's back up to verse 17. I read it quickly. I want us to notice something here. It says, middle point of the verse, or about uh, one-third of the way in, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign. I'm going to ask you a question, when? And it says, in life. That's right now. That's not talking about the millennial kingdom. Shall reign, rule, have dominion in life. That's right now. Let me ask you. Is that your present experience? <laughs> In other words, are we stumbling around as struggling sinners, or are we somehow accessing a supernatural lift called grace to reign? I want to speak tonight on struggling sinners or the righteous reigning. Or to just put it simply, the righteous reign. Let's pray. Let me encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to open your understanding tonight and convince you and bring you to faith. Lord, we need you tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to convince us of truth. And beyond that convincing, Lord, to bring us to genuine surrender and faith. Lord, I pray tonight that for some, this will be a watershed moment where that's needed, that this will be pivotal that this will be one of those moments where you so open the understanding that months from now there'll be ongoing transformation taking place. Lord, for others, may this be a deepening of what you've already awakened them to. Lord, wherever anyone is on their journey, use truth tonight to set free, to bring each one down that road with you. Now, Lord, I plead the blood tonight. Protect us from the attack of the enemy who certainly doesn't want us to get this. 
And so, Lord Jesus, I claim our position in you on the throne far above the enemy, and in your name that is above all names, I exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight, and I trust you that that not be allowed. Lord, breathe on us tonight. Liberate, free, Lord, in the person of Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, I heard an older preacher say, if you want victory over sin. Well, that immediately caught my attention because I needed it. <laughs> he says, if you want victory over sin, he said, memorize Romans chapter 6. And I remember thinking to myself, is that all? <laughs> I can do this. <laughs> I was a good memorizer in my uh, younger years. And so I memorized Romans chapter 6. He said, if you memorize Romans chapter 6, you're going to have victory over sin. So I memorized it. I could stand and quote it flawlessly. And guess what happened? Nothing, <laughs> except that I could quote Romans chapter 6. Because if you don't understand what you memorized and be convinced of it and believe on it, it's just an intellectual exercise. Have you ever noticed the precision of the wording in Psalm 119 verse 11? It says, thy word have I hid in my Then why do we interpret it as mind? That's what that man was saying. If you memorize Romans 6, you'll have victory over sin. But it doesn't say mind. It says, thy word have I hid treasured in my heart. It's more than the mind. It includes the mind, but it's more than the mind. And the word of God is precise there, and yet we often interpret it just simply as mind. But it doesn't say mind. It says, thy word have I hid treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So what's the heart? Well, we'll come back to that in a second. Before we do, I want to ask you three questions. On the first two questions, you do not have to raise your hand. You do not have to nod your head. I just want you to get an answer in your mind. All right, question number one. On an average day, how many sins would you say you commit <laughs> compared to acts of righteousness? So we're kind of after a ratio here. This many sins uh, to this many uh, uh, acts of righteousness. You know, what's more, what's less? On an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? All right, got an answer in your mind, I hope. <laughs> All right, second question. This is very similar, but it has a little bit different nuance. On a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your average day would you say is righteous? All right, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? So we're just looking for a percentage there. All right, third question. <clears throat> this time, I would like you to raise your hand, and heads will not be bowed, and eyes will not be closed. <laughs> so here's the question. If you have not sinned today, raise your hand. All right, I see one. There's just one, okay. Usually that only happens on Sunday morning <laughs> when it's close enough to when you got up. But at any rate, now, if you could not raise your hand, which was the vast majority of the audience, what sins came to mind? Now, in audiences where the answers are written down and compiled and data is taken from it, uh, audiences like this, Christian audiences, uh, on that first question uh, uh, that uh, we asked, on an average day, how many sins would you say you commit compared to acts of righteousness? The average audience has three sins to one act of righteousness. There was one seminary class that only had two sins <laughs> to one act of righteousness, but the average audience had three sins to one act of righteousness. On the second question, uh, what on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? The average audience had it somewhere between 30, that's on the low end, up to 60. But do you notice that the majority of those answers are 50% or less? That's audiences like this, Christian audiences. On the final question, if you have not sinned today, raise your hand. Uh, the average audience has no one raised their hand or one. On the follow-up question, if you could not raise your hand, what sins came to mind? Some know, yeah, I got mad, I said this, I did this, they know exactly what they did, okay. But others think this, well, I can't think of anything, but I'm sure I did something. Which means that there is kind of a dirt ball 
mentality. In other words, those answers all lend themselves to this view of ourselves that we are dirty, rotten sinners. Now, is that accurate? I'm not asking what you do. We can all make dirty messes. I get that. I'm asking, if you're a child of God, what you are. And see, if you believe you are a dirt ball, you're going to act out dirt. Because we come back to that word heart now. What is the heart? I won't have time to go into all the details of why this is so. Uh, it is very defendable from the word of God. But your heart is the collective response of your soul. So remember this morning, we have the mind, we have the affections where you get convinced of what you understand, and then you have your will where you make choices on that basis. So on an average day, we have all sorts of thoughts come into our mind. We drive down the street and see a dog run across the road. You know, there's all these thoughts that go into our mind and get kicked right back out. But then there are some thoughts that we kind of latch on to, and then there are other thoughts that we really latch on to, and when that's the case, they affect us. Those affections produce involuntary emotions. And those emotions push us to make the choices that we make. All of that combined is your heart. It's the reflection of your soul. It's the collective response of your understanding, your, what you're convinced of, and therefore the choices that you make. Now, when the Scripture says in Proverbs, uh, it says, as a man thinketh in his heart. That's a very interesting passage. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's talking about a miserly guy who says, here, here's some food, and then when you eat it, he's ticked at you down deep because he's a miser, and he didn't really want you to eat it. <laughs> and that's when it says, as a man thinketh in his heart. However, that's not the word heart. <laughs> that's the word soul. As a man calculates in his soul, so is he. And then the next phrase goes on to tell us what all that is when it says, for his heart, there's the real word for heart, is not with you. Ah, so as we calculate in our soul what we understand, get convinced of, make choices, okay, as we calculate in our soul, in other words, what we really down deep believe, that's the heart. You see, tonight I am not that interested in what you say you believe. I am interested, but I'm not as interested in what you say you believe as in what you really believe. Because all of us act out what we really believe. Pretty sobering thought. All of us do. That's why I asked at the beginning, what do you really believe? Because all of us act out what we really believe. Now, tonight... I want us to look at three parts to our discussion that will bring us to a culminating thought at the end. Let's begin with a description of a sin-conscious heart. In other words, a description of this dirt ball mentality. A description of this, uh, you know, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner kind of thinking about what we are. Let's talk about this because this is where we get off course. In the sin-conscious heart, because if that's what you really believe you are, a dirt ball, then you're going to act out dirt, it starts by being law-focused. That's why I pointed out in verse 20, the purpose of the law is not to empower you to obey it. The law is holy and just and good. Romans 7 tells us that's true. It's God's law. We don't want to denigrate the law at all. However, the law has no power to help you obey it. It's there to show you when you disobey it. And so if you're focused on the law, you're just going to find out when you blow it. Fascinating. Now, most would not say, I'm law-focused. We would say this. Well, you know, you got to do this and got to not do that. Then you're law-focused. In other words, your focus is on an outcome. It's on your box of what you consider Christianity should look like, your version of what Christianity should look like, how it should play out. By the way, that... <laughs> That really can't be the right focus because I'm an evangelist. I'm in a different church every week. Every church has got a different box. <laughs> that can't be right. But this is where many are. I lived in this way of thinking for years. I know the way of thinking well, <laughs> like extremely well. You see, when you're focused on, I've got to do this and got to not do this, you're list focused. In other words, your focus is on your list of do's and don'ts. And quite frankly, over the years, the list of don'ts get a whole lot longer than the do's. <laughs> Believe me, man, I had, a, I had a really long one. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Obviously, there are things we should do and things we should don't do. <laughs> the question is, what should our focus be? Obviously, it is legitimate and even needful for us to desire a right outcome. That's legitimate. The question is, what should our focus be to get there? See, that's why I asked tonight, what or who is your focus? You see, all of this matters, as we're going to see, it matters greatly. So the point is simply this. If you're focused on, well, I've got to do this and got to not do this, then another way to say that is you're focused on not sinning. Well, that sounds good. Here's the problem. Do you know if you're focused on not sinning? You're focused on sin. And if you're focused on sin, what will it lead you to do? Sin. Wow, what a deception. What a radical deception. You see, when we're focused on all of the stuff I got to do and all the stuff I got to not do and, and all the uh, good stuff, it can even be out of the Bible. Most of it is. <laughs> Sometimes we add our stuff to it. But even if it's just stuff right out of the Bible, the question here is focus. And if we're list focus, if we're focused on not sinning, then unwittingly we're focused on sin. And instead of helping us, it leads us to sin. All of that wrong focus produces feelings of fear. When will I go down again? Oh, I'm right with God right now, but how long is it going to be till I blow it the next time? See, that's fear. That's not faith. Uh, it produces feelings of, oh man, I just got to try harder. Something's wrong here. It produces feelings of unworthiness because somehow we just don't seem to measure up. Well, that's a big one. I have that phrase quoted to me all the time. I just don't measure up. And every time I hear that, it lets me know there is a wrong focus. They're focused on a list. It produces feelings of insufficiency because, well, man, I guess I just don't have what it takes. It produces feelings of frustration because we cannot achieve our goal. And that produces feelings of guilt because we're failing. And that produces feelings of condemnation as our conscience, our mistaught conscience, is beating us up. And the accuser of the brethren is glad to come right in and join in that mistaught conscience and say, yep, you're a dud. Man, are you a loser? Why don't you just give up? Ever heard that? And yet at the same time, in this wrong focus paradigm, we're judgmental of others because if you're focused on a list, you're aware when everybody else is blowing it too. Fascinating. So there's this description of a sin-conscious heart or this dirtball mentality and if that's where our focus is, if that's what we believe we are, then all of us act according to what we believe we are down deep. See, your heart is what you really believe down deep. It's the summation of your soul. Now, before we go on, I want us to compare just for a moment the sin-conscious heart with the God-conscious heart so we can further perhaps understand where we are on this. We noted already that in the sin-conscious heart, it begins with being law-focused, rules-focused, uh, got to do this, got to do, not do that focused. But do you know that the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 that the letter, referring to the letter of the law, without the spirit, the letter of the law kills. Do you know if you're focused on law, you're focused on death? See, remember, the law does not empower you to obey it. It shows you when you disobey it. So it's showing you when you do wrong. And thus, it is in called in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, a ministry of condemnation. And it's called a ministry of death. Why? Because the letter of the law kills. But in contrast to that, and by the way, there are some people who recognize, man, that, that law-focused thing, there's, there's death there. And so what they do is chuck the law and embrace no law, which means they're still embracing law in reverse. They're reverse legalists. <laughs> That's not the answer either. It's not my point to deal with that tonight. But in contrast to the sin-conscious heart and this wrong focus on list or law, in the God-conscious heart, the focus is on Jesus. Now, you remember what we saw this morning. 1 John 1, 2, Jesus is called that eternal life. You see, the law shows you when you blow it. Thus, it's a ministry of death. But in contrast, Jesus is life himself. So when you focus on him, you're focused on life. 
You see, in the law side of it, you're focused on not sinning. In the God-conscious heart, you're focused on the righteous one. See, in the, in the sin-conscious heart, you're focused on a list. In the God-conscious heart, you're focused on a person who's the life-giver himself. So, in the sin-conscious heart, there's that mode of fear. When will I go down again? How long will it take? In the God-conscious paradigm or heart, there's the mode of faith or confidence in God. In the sin-conscious heart, there's that mode of try harder. In the God-conscious heart, there's that mode of resting, trusting in Jesus. In that sin-conscious heart, there's that sense of unworthiness because we don't measure up. But in the God-conscious heart, listen carefully, there is a sense of worthiness in Christ who measured up and continues to measure up for us. Bless the Lord. In the sin-conscious heart, there is that sense of insufficiency. We don't have what it takes. In the God-conscious heart, there's that sense of God's sufficiency. He does have what it takes. In the sin-conscious heart, there's frustration. In the God-conscious heart, there's peace. In the sin-conscious heart, there's guilt. In the God-conscious heart, there's joy as you're experiencing freedom in the person of Jesus. In the sin-conscious heart, there's condemnation. In the God-conscious heart, there's no condemnation as the love of God is being shed abroad in your heart. In that sin-conscious heart, we're judgmental of others. But do you know in the God-conscious way of thinking, belief system, heart, you're not judgmental. Wow. <laughs> That'd be miraculous. So, which of these descriptions best describes your way of thinking? Now, before you fully answer, let's go to the second part of our discussion. Let's move from the description of a sin-conscious heart to diagnosing a sin-conscious heart. Let's diagnose spiritual heart disease because that's exactly what this is. And so let me give seven symptoms that diagnose a sin-conscious heart, a dirt ball mentality, the spiritual heart disease. This would be assuming that you know Jesus as your Savior. Number one, you consider yourself still a sinner saved by grace. Now the key word there is still. You consider yourself still a sinner saved by grace. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand. Obviously, we were sinners. We were born sinners. And yes, if we're saved, we're saved by grace. There's no other way. Jesus does all the saving. Faith is not a work. It simply depends on him to save us. Okay. But once we get saved, are we still sinners? I'm not asking, can you still sin? That's obvious. <laughs> I'm asking at our core, are we still sinners? You know what the Bible teaches? If you look at the verb tenses that are repeatedly given in epistle after epistle all throughout the New Testament, the key is this. The moment you get saved, then the bottom line is from that point on, you were a sinner and you are a saint Amen. who can still sin. <laughs> But there's a difference now in understanding what you are. See, if you believe you're a dirt ball, you're going to act out dirt. Now, friends, the fact is, You don't become a saint because you live saintly. You may live saintly because you are a saint. But you've got to get that. You've got to believe that. Not just what you say you believe. I mean believe it. I mean allow the Spirit of God to get you to the second side of the triangle where you're convinced now you can exercise faith instead of wishful thinking. See, many people jump from, from understanding some basics uh, to supposedly a choice of faith and wonder why it doesn't work. It's because they're not convinced it's really true, which means it's not faith. It's simply wishful thinking. And so this is very important. The fact is, God says you're a saint. Do you know that 63 times in the relatively short piece of literature called the New Testament, the inspired word of God calls believers in Jesus saints? 63 times. The word saint means a holy one. That's what God says. Now why are we calling what God calls holy a dirt ball? When we do, we're insulting the amazing redemption and work of Jesus on the cross. Unwittingly, I understand, we do it piously. We think we're being humble, but we're wrong about it. 
You see, there's something happened when you got saved. There's something this radical that God provided when you got saved that from that point onward, when you depend on that provision, it is by faith, it's not automatic, but when you depend on that provision, you access Jesus. When you access Jesus, you don't sin. So we're able not to sin. Why? Because Jesus is in us, that's why. And when we access him by faith, obviously, he doesn't sin. But it's not automatic. We can ignore him, we can ignore our provision, and yes, we can still sin. So we're not talking about sinless perfectionism. We are talking about the reality that Jesus is in you. We're talking about a sinless provision. His name is Jesus, and he's in you. And friends, when you access him, you just access the victorious life himself. That's the key here. And so, when we sin now, it's because we ignore our provision. But even when we sin, we're failing saints. (laughs) To get technical. Now, I realize we could say we're sinners because we just blew it and we sinned. I get that. We know what it is to, to make dirty messes. But I'm telling you, what you are is not a sinner. You're a saint. And the sooner you actually believe that, the sooner things can change. That's the point. Secondly, second symptom of a sin-conscious heart. You assume you sin often, even without knowing it. So back to the question, if you're not sin today, raise your hand. Basically, most people don't raise their hands. If you couldn't raise your hand, what came to mind? Well, I'm not sure, but I'm sure I did something. Okay, there it is. This assumption that you sin often even without knowing it. Now stop and think about this. I'm not talking about sins of ignorance that you don't know are sins. What we're talking about is things that you know are sins, but you don't know when you do them. (laughs) That doesn't even make sense. You know, if the Holy Spirit's in you, does he not warn you when sin is approaching? And when you ignore his warnings and go ahead and uh, cave into the uh, uh, flesh, does he not convict you, blow the whistle of conviction? It's just like a referee in a ball game. You're out of bounds. He just blows the whistle. Okay, yeah, which means you'd know it. Now, I understand that we can sin enough and trample our conscience enough that we can get desensitized. But even at that, if there's a moment of awakening and you cry out to the Lord, Lord, would you show me what's wrong? Would you search my heart and show you exactly what's wrong? And by the way, when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, he always does it specifically, always. General conviction is a counterfeit from the enemy to get you to follow the wrong voice. Holy Spirit conviction is always specific. You'll know exactly what it is. So this idea that we sin often even without knowing it, if that's what you believe, then you think you're sinning all the time. That's going to affect your relationship with God. Not him toward you, but you toward him. And that's going to affect your faith and your prayer life will be hindered. You know, I walk the hallways of a lot of churches and then usually about 40, 42, 43 churches a year. I walk the hallways of Christian schools, occasionally the hallways of colleges, And especially in our Christian institutions, I'm amazed at how many of God's people walk around, walk down the hallway with their head down. There's a sense of shame. Friends, there's something wrong with that. There is something wrong with that. And it stems from this wrong focus and this wrong heart, this wrong down deep what you really believe. And so... That's a great hindrance. Third symptom of a sin-conscious heart. You assume it's normal to sin regularly. Key word here is normal. You assume that it's normal to sin regularly. In fact, we got a phrase to excuse ourselves when we blow it. Well, you know, I'm only human. Is that true? If you're born from above, John chapter 3, are you only human? You know, where in the New Testament does it teach this idea that it's normal to sin regularly? You know, a few chapters from here is Romans 8, and at the end of the chapter it says, we are more than, oh, you know the verse. More than conquerors. Whoa, that's, that's a little bit different paradigm than it's normal to sin regularly. Now, the provision for victory is available. We saw it uh, very briefly at the end of the message this morning in 1 John 5. This is the victory that overcomes our world, even our, even our faith. Why? Because faith uh, is not a work. It depends upon the worker, Jesus himself, who is the victory. So the provision is there. Why? Because Jesus is in us. But it is by faith, which means it's not automatic. And since it's not automatic, yes, we have warnings that encourage us, flee fornication, flee also youthful lust. 
We have the admonition, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have the words of 1 John 2, 1, my little children, he's talking to saved people, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, praise the Lord that even though there are times when we just ignore all the provision and we cave into the flesh and the works of the flesh are manifest and we make a big rot, uh, rotten, dirty mess, I get all that. Praise the Lord, we can walk in the light as I mentioned this morning. We can confess our sins and when we truly get honest with God, the blood of Jesus comes in and cleans us up every time. But did you notice what that verse considers the exception? It says, my little children, these things write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, that's the exception. Then why do we make it the rule? What you believe down deep matters. Because we all act out what we really believe. Fascinating. Number four, this is a big one. Fourth symptom of a sin-conscious heart, heart disease. You believe that temptation itself is sin. Oh, how could that even be in my mind? God, forgive me, kind of thing. Now, some, especially in an audience like this, you know, wait a second, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, temptation's not sin. It's only if you enter into the temptation. Jesus said, pray that you enter not into the temptation. Okay, so you get that up here. <laughs> You say that temptation is not sin. But again, tonight, I'm not that interested in what you say you believe. I'm very interested in what you really believe, so let's find it out. <laughs> when a trigger of temptation hits you, if you immediately confess it, then down deep you believe temptation itself is sin. And if temptation itself is sin, we're sinning all the time because there's lots of triggers, <laughs> traps, snares, the fiery darts from the enemy, a good night. But I'm telling you, friends, Temptation is not sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin, which means temptation cannot be sin. And that is why Jesus told his disciples, and thus us, pray that you don't enter into temptation, indicating that the temptation itself is not sin. It only becomes sin if we enter into it. Amen. Now, I had somebody uh, come to me after a service, after I preached this, well, preacher, what about that verse in Proverbs 24, 9? <laughs> The thought of foolishness is sin. Well, look it up. The word thought means the devising, the scheming, the planning to do evil, which means you've already entered the temptation. But that a thought comes into your mind because you saw a trigger and that's out of your control. That is not sin. Praise the Lord for that. And that's vital for us to understand. That means when you are tempted, there is the opportunity to take the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and take Jesus and escape that temptation. That you're tempted is not sin. It's only if you enter into it, and so you have the opportunity to take Jesus as your way of escape. Somebody says, well, how much time do you have? Well, I heard Jim Shetler say that he heard years ago an old preacher say, that gives a credence because he's an old preacher. Now I'm getting old, so I like this. <laughs> I'm just joking when I say that. Credence is the word of God. He said, you heard an old preacher say you got four seconds. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's really four seconds. I do know that you have enough time where you're, you become cognizant, oh, wait a second, this is bad, and you take Jesus. You have the time because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says you do. Jesus is there as the way of escape. Number five, fifth symptom of a sin-conscious heart. You assume that it's easier to sin than to do right. This is a big one. You assume it's easier to sin than to do right. Now, wait a second. If we all act out what we really believe, and we assume that it's easier to sin, then what are we going to do? Sin. <laughs> you see, these things matter. They matter greatly. All, we all act out what we really believe, even if what we believe is wrong. Remember years ago, I was in a meeting, and uh, the pastor had been at the church uh, long enough to be loved, <laughs> and uh, uh, he uh, noticed on the calendar one spring that April 1st, April Fool's Day, was going to land on a Sunday. He thought, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so at the end of the Sunday school hour, uh, he gets up and with a somber, sober face announces his resignation. <laughs> well, people burst into tears. I would imagine the deacons between Sunday school and church saying, did, did he tell you? Did, he didn't tell me. What did he tell you? You know, it was a mess. 
Well, he tucked away and hid himself between Sunday school and church. <laughs> and then when the morning service came to starting time, he comes out, big smile on his face and says, April Fool's. It did not go over. <laughs> and three months later, they got him back. In Christian love, of course. <laughs> now, when they were weeping and crying and everything was a big mess, it wasn't true. But they believed it was true. And they were acting out what they believed. We all do. Now, the Scripture tells us that God's commandments are not grievous. That's your word, burdensome. Now, I know sometimes we're thinking, okay, I know that's what the Bible says, but man, oh man, some of those commandments seem like real burdens. Okay, what's the problem? Well, it means we don't understand God's economy of grace because in the economy of grace, the cash is faith. Faith is not a work. It depends on God. And then he does the work. Oh, that's why they're not burdensome. If they're burdensome, it's because you're trying to do it on your own. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11? My yoke is, wow. Do we believe that? I mean, we say we do. Do we really? Do you really believe that? See, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The bottom line is, you get to Jesus, not just to save you from hell, but to deliver you right now. That's when he carries the load. That's when his yoke is easy. Why? Because he's carrying it. Our job is faith and faith is not a work. Oh, that means he's doing all the work. It's like when my brother-in-law, Gary, and I work together. He does all the work. <laughs> I don't know how. That's my famous line. <laughs> now, the reality is here. <laughs> Jesus said my yoke is easy. Now, let me ask you this. Is it difficult for a dog to act like a dog? No, this is not a true question. <laughs> okay. You know, you have enough of those today. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Okay. Is it difficult for, uh, for a pig to act like a pig? No, they just act out what they are. Okay, so if you are a saint, shouldn't it be easy? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> this is amazing. All right, let's go further. Number six, symptom of a sin-conscious heart. This is really a big one. You assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. You assume your default mode is to sin unless you deliberately choose righteousness. Now, friends, if that's what we believe, and I've been there, then the burden's on us. Well, that's not going to go well. See, it's just like a computer where you've got the default to print off of this printer unless you go in and deliberately change it. And many of us believe, we assume that the default mode is to sin unless we deliberately choose righteousness. But you know, there's something that radically changed when you were born again. You were placed into Jesus, and thus you were placed into his death and resurrection. And when you were placed into his death, at that moment, according to Romans 6 and verse 2, you died to sin. Now, the practical essence of death is separation, just as when the soul separates from the body. And there's something that happened in the internal part of you between your spirit and this entity in the Bible called sin. Not sins, but that something in us that urges us to commit sins. Now, look, when there's a trigger of temptation out there and you feel the pull, do you know what I mean? Okay. That pull that you feel, that's indwelling sin. It's what Romans 7 says, sin which dwelleth in me. Not sins, but this entity inside of us that urges us to commit sins. Okay, prior to salvation, our core, the real you prior to salvation was joined to that guy. You were alive to sin. But when you got saved, you got placed into Jesus. And according to Romans 6 and verse 10, he died unto sin which means at that moment we die unto sin. See, when you believe on Jesus, you're placed into Jesus, and the cross comes in like a giant knife, and there's your, your old man that's joined to that old master of indwelling sin, and the cross comes in like a knife and cuts through all the chains and sets you free. Then you're raised the new man, and that new man is God's nature implanted into you. It's God's DNA put into you so that the Holy Spirit could move in. There had to be a part of you made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. Okay, that new man, which according to Ephesians 4.24, is created after God in righteousness and true holiness. Why? It's God's nature. That's the real you. 
and the default of the real you is to Jesus every time. Now, that old sin master indwelling sin, he still hangs around. We got severed from him, we got unshackled, we got set free, we died to him. However, he still hangs around in our soul and body level. And that's why there are times when we blow it, because we follow the deceptions and cave into him and work for him when he's not our boss anymore. So the default of him is to the trigger of temptation every time. But the default of the real you, God's nature in you, that new man created after God in righteousness and true life, the default of that entity, the real you, now that you're saved, that's joined to Jesus, the default of that nature of God is to God. <laughs> every time. So here's the reality. Your default mode, once you're saved, is to Jesus, unless you deliberately choose sin. See, it's totally opposite of what we often think. Now, here's what's beautiful about this. When you walk in the Spirit, when you walk in the provision of the Spirit, He brings the leadership and the power of Christ right into you. And friends, when you walk in His leadership and power, that's when he imparts to you the life of Christ. Remember Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me by faith. In other words, without faith, you miss out on the full benefits. But with faith, you access the reality of Jesus living in you. You're walking in the Spirit now. You're walking by faith. You're yielding to his leadership and power. And that's when the Spirit imparts to you Jesus. And friends, when that's the case, it's not I but Christ. And do you know when it's not I but Christ? Everything you do is an act of righteousness. Remember that question about, you know, how many sins compared to how many acts of righteousness? The acts of righteousness should far outweigh the acts of sin. Why? Because when you walk in the Spirit, do you know when you trust the Spirit to get out of bed in the morning when you ought to? <laughs> That's an act of righteousness because you're accessing Jesus. Wow. Ladies, when you are walking in the Spirit and you change the baby's diapers, now that's really an act of righteousness. <laughs> but do you get my point? It's not just when we read the Bible, go to Bible study, go to church, and go soul winning. When you walk in the Spirit, when you're yielded to the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's practical. We've got to do the practical things of life too, like work and clean the house and whatever. When you're walking in the Spirit, yielding to His leadership and power, He's imparting to you Jesus, which means everything you do in those moments is not I but Christ. Everything you do is an act of righteousness. Man, one guy got a hold of this in a meeting I was in in Tennessee, and the next day his wife came home from the grocery store, and she says, honey, would you open the door? And he's thinking, act of righteousness. And so he opens the door and says, yes! And she's thinking, what happened? <laughs> you see, the reality is, everything that a Christian does when he walks in the Spirit, it means he's not walking in the flesh. See, we're never a synthesis. We can vacillate quickly. <laughs> we're all a little schizophrenic. Uh, but when you're walking in the Spirit... You're not walking in the flesh, which means it's not I but Christ, which means everything you do in those moments is an act of righteousness. Bless the Lord. My father put it this way, the new nature, that new man, is a new natural. See, the default of that God nature in you part is to the Holy Spirit every time unless we yield, choose to deliberately Yield to the old sin master who's not our master. See, it's natural for the new you, the real you, to walk with Jesus. Number seven, seventh symptom of a sin-conscious heart. You assume God loves you more when you perform well and less when you blow it. Oh, man, did I ever blow it yesterday? Wow, I'm sure God's ticked at me. It's going to be at least two or three weeks before I can expect God to bless me again. Ever think that way? If you do, you're a Catholic-style Baptist. <laughs> See, that's performance-based thinking. It's meritorious thinking when the Christian life is by faith. Jesus is the one who merits. We piggyback on him. Ah, what a radical difference. And this idea that God loves us more when we do right. Oh, man, look at me, I'm this, I'm that. God's really pleased. Now revival's going to come because I'm holy. My friends, 
What God blesses is faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And without faith, you don't have holiness. All you got is the form of godliness. And there is a form, but you're denying the power thereof. So this assumption that God loves us more when we perform well, less when we don't, that's wrong thinking. And it's an indication of a sin-conscious heart. It's an indication of a wrong focus. It's an indication of that law focus. Now, if three or four of these fit your way of thinking, they are deceptions, they're from the enemy, and they do indicate heart disease. I was in one meeting. There's one young man, young married guy comes to me, he goes, man, he said, I failed all seven of them. <laughs> well appreciated his honesty. And uh, I understand it well. I've, I've lived these <laughs> far too much over the years. Now, we've seen the description of a sin-conscious heart, and now the diagnosis of a sin-conscious heart. So let's get to the third part of this, the deliverance for a sin-conscious heart. You see, if down deep we believe wrong, we believe we're dirt balls, and therefore that affects how we live, okay, if we have a wrong way of thinking, then what needs to happen? We need to change our thinking. Now let me ask you, what Bible word means change your thinking? Repent. See, there it is. Change your thinking. See, because your thinking, your way of thinking reveals what you consider absolute. And if your dependence is on a wrong, a wrong object, you got to change your thinking. You got to depend on Jesus based on truth. Okay, you need a heart change. You've got to change what you really believe. Because if down deep we believe we're dirt balls, that's going to lead us to acting out dirt. But if down deep you believe what God says, know that his nature is implanted into you, and beyond that the Holy Spirit moved in, as we're going to see here in a moment, then that changes everything. But to change your way of thinking, you can't move from the understanding side of the soul to the volitional side of the soul unless you're convinced. And that's why Romans 6, 11 says reckon. It's in the passive voice. It simply means allow yourself to be convinced by the convincer, the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see how important that is here. But the reality is, in order for us to change our thinking, it cannot be wishful thinking. It has to be based on truth. So what truth is it? Well... We did have a text tonight. <laughs> Let's go back to it and see three truths right in this text as we uh, bring this uh, uh, together. First of all, there's positional truth. This is the truth of justification, whereby through faith in Jesus you are declared righteous. The end of verse 18 talks about justification of life. Chapter 5, verse 1 tells us when that happens, therefore being justified by faith. So, if there's been a time, as we saw this morning, when you've understood sin is the problem, judgment is the consequence, Christ alone is the answer, you've agreed and you've made that choice to depend, faith in Jesus, to actually save you, that at that moment, among many other salvation truths, you were justified. In other words, God declared you righteous. In other words, all of your sins were imputed to Jesus, so that by faith in Jesus, all of his righteousness is imputed to you. Now, let me ask you, what percentage of righteousness does Jesus have? 100%. That should have been our answer. Now, it was a trick question. I know, second one on the same Lord's Day, that's really mean. Uh, but, let's think about this. When I asked that second question, uh, what percentage, on a scale of one, uh, 1 to 100, what percentage of your day would you say is righteous? Most of us interpret it as, what percentage of your day would, did you act out righteousness? That wasn't the question. Maybe you caught it. The question was, what percentage of your day is righteous? And for every child of God in this room, the answer is 100%. In other words, from a legal, positional standpoint, your sins were imputed over to Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, his Perfect righteousness was credited, imputed it over to you. So legally, when God sees you, he doesn't see you with your sins. He sees you with the righteousness of his own son. Amen. That's 100%. Amen. Now, friends, you're declared righteous. That's being justified, which means when you walk into heaven, you'll go in with your head up. 
because you don't go in on your righteousness. You go in on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand there's going to be some probably distressing moments at the judgment seat, but I'm not talking about I'm talking about when you enter heaven. Friends, you won't go in with your head down. Even if you die on your worst day, you go in with your head up because you go in with the 100% righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have some dear friends who uh, had a son who uh, was saved as a kid. I remember him well. And uh, somewhere in his late teenage years, I think, uh, something like that, he made some, some bad choices and got, got into some addictions and so on. And then later in his 20s, uh, he got off the addictions, had done well for 18 months. That's a long time. And then uh, they found him dead with an overdose. I don't know what happened. But I remember his brother called me. He was just, just, just really having a hard time, understandably so. I said, you need to know something. Your brother knew Jesus. We both know that. And you need to know that whatever happened the other day, when he walked into heaven, he walked in with his head up. See, that's positional truth. That through faith in Jesus, you are declared righteous because his 100% righteousness has been imputed over to your account. Secondly, Second truth. There's not only positional truth, there's provisional truth. I love this. Uh, we've tapped into it, but let's just expand it a tad here. It says there in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made, constituted sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made or constituted righteous. So this is different than being declared righteous. There's a part of you that when you get saved is made righteous constituted. 2 Corinthians 5.21 becomes righteous. It's not just positional truth, it's provisional. It's not just that you're declared righteous, this part of you is actually righteous. You see, you remember that old man part of us that was joined to that old master, and that's what gets severed when we die to sin, uh, when we put our faith in Jesus. You're, the old man dies with Christ and is raised the new man. See, that's your spirit. So we have body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit part of us is raised the new man. So think about this body, soul, and spirit. On the body level, um, you know, we understand that part. That's the physical level. Uh, dust thou art, to dust shalt thou return. In that sense, we're all a bunch of dirt balls. I get it. Okay. But we're not talking about that. On the soul level, yes, that's where you can progress in sanctification. The progress comes through faith. There's lack of progress when there's unbelief. None of it's automatic. But the spirit part of you, the day you got saved, became righteous. See, it was raised. The new man, which is created. See, that's the new creature, the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. After God, what does that mean? Well, in 1 John 3, 9, it tells us that that part of us is God's seed. Literally, God's sperma. Do you know that when you're born again, something of God's own nature is put into you? And God's nature is righteous, and God's nature is holy, and God's nature is loving, and God's nature is good, and so much more. And that is your core. That's the real you. That's why you're called a child of God. That's the part that's made holy so the Holy Spirit could move in. There had to be a part made truly holy, actually holy, so the Holy Spirit could move in. That's the beachhead. It is your human spirit, the new man. So you're not only human at your core, the divine nature has been implanted and you've been joined to Jesus by his Holy Spirit so that you can become partakers of the divine nature, Peter tells us under inspiration. Now, all of that provision is not the absence of our weakness because we can ignore that and we crash and burn really quick. But it is the presence of his strength. The greatest truth there being that the Holy Spirit moves in. But that brings us to the third truth. There's practical truth. So positional truth, justification through faith, you're declared righteous. Provisional truth, oh, I forgot to tell you, is regeneration. My bad. Uh, regeneration, whereby through that same faith in Jesus, there's a part of you that's made righteous. So justification, declared righteous. Regeneration, that's the part that's made righteous. And let me just say this. When God's nature is implanted into you, God's seed, it's God's DNA. That's powerful. Regeneration is 
powerful. But that brings us now thirdly to practical truth, whereby through the simple faith access. Remember, faith is not a work. It just simply depends on the worker, Jesus, and he does the work. Okay, so the practical truth is that through the faith access, you can experience righteousness. His name is Jesus. You can experience the righteous one. Now, we got to get this. Go back to verse 17, because I asked you at the beginning of the message, what or who is your focus? And then I asked, what do you really believe? So we've been dealing with that the whole message long. Let's talk about the focus. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they, so this is open to any child of God, which receive. Let me stop right there. See the word receive? That word in some passages is translated take. I emphasize that because we often interpreted it uh, as be given. That's not what it means. It means to take, to receive what is being given. Another thing that's interesting about that verb is that it's in the present tense, and you probably know that that means it's ongoing. So here's what it's saying. They which keep taking. <laughs> There's just this constant provision. And those who keep taking, notice this, abundance of grace. Grace is that supernatural enablement through the Holy Spirit to do God's will. In other words, his leadership, his power, and those who keep taking his leadership, those who keep taking his power. That's marvelous. Then it goes on to say, and of the gift of righteousness. Do you know the only righteousness God accepts is his own? <laughs> That's why we need credited, imputed righteousness and justification and imparted righteousness and sanctification. And so those who keep taking this abundance of spirit, leadership, and power, and therefore the gift of righteousness. Why? Because when you yield to the spirit's leadership and power, he imparts to you Jesus himself. He imparts to you righteousness himself. So those who keep taking this abundance of grace and uh, this gift of righteousness shall reign, rule, have dominion. When? In life. Right now. How? By one. Jesus Christ. Now, the service started tonight with us singing as a congregation, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And how many of us think, oh, yeah, 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 I believe that. But really, that's not true. Because for many, they're not looking to Jesus, they're looking to their list. And a list is not a person. Guidelines are wonderful, but you need the guide, the person. Why is it important? This is critical. Whatever or whoever you focus on is whatever or whoever you will depend on. Hebrews 12, 2 says it clearly. Looking unto Jesus, right focus. The author of faith, right dependence. See, whatever or whoever you focus on is whatever or whoever you depend on. If you're actually focused on Jesus, then that Jesus focus leads to Jesus dependence, which means Jesus enablement and Jesus experience. <laughs> That's the Christian life. But if your focus is on, oh man, I got to do this, I got to not do this, right desire to want that outcome. So I'm not knocking that at all. We should all want a right outcome. I'm saying, how do we get there? And if our focus is all the stuff we got to do and not do, that means we're not focused on Jesus. And whatever you focus on is whatever you depend on. And now if we're focused on the law, then we're depending on the law. And we saw in verse 20, the purpose of the law is not to empower us to obey it. It's to show us when we disobey it. And so what happens is we're over here and we're depending on the law and there's no power there. So what happens? We immediately revert back to self-dependence. See, that's why Romans 7 is Romans 7. I used to wonder, why is it Romans 7, Romans 6? Because Romans 7 is a mess. All the things you want to do, you don't do. All the things you don't want to do, you do. Why didn't that start with, you know, why isn't that Romans 6 and then Romans 6 and then Romans 8? <laughs> well, here's how it usually works for most of us. We get saved by grace through faith. Hallelujah. And then we go back to sanctification by struggle. <laughs> and we try to do it. And either you blow it outright crash and burn, or you do mimic the form of godliness and deny the power thereof, which will go up in smoke at the judgment seat and be exposed. All that is is religionism. So um, that's what happens if our focus 
is, is just on the, the law, then we're back to self-dependence. So what happens is, in our journey, as we're trying to do what's right on our own, it's not working, and so then we have an awakening to God's power. I remember when it happened for me. Wow, what an awakening. The power of God, grace, spirit enablement. And an old message called Mega Grace. I still preach it from time to time. And wow, what an awakening. And I thought, this is it, this is it. I need to go and get God's power to get in my box. <laughs> oh, I wasn't there yet. <laughs> I'm still not there, I understand. But you get this. So we have this awakening to the power of Jesus and the goal, the leader, is our box. Unwittingly, we do it in the name of following Jesus, but we're not following Jesus, we're following a list. We're following our version of what we think Christianity should look out, look like. And again, it varies from church to church, so that can't be the right focus. And so what happens is we're, we're focused on, on this instead of him, which means we revert back to self-dependence. And when that happens, we get messed up. Because in Romans 7, I've got to remember, the Apostle Paul, according to Galatians 1 and 2, had 17 years go by between his conversion, his salvation experience and the first missionary journey. 17 years where he was learning what we're learning. Took him some time too. And in Romans 7, verse 7 down to 13, it's law commandments, law commandments, law commandments, 12 times. There's the wrong focus. Romans 6, all this power. Romans 7, wrong focus. And when that happens, you revert back to self-dependence. And that's when Paul says the word I 25 times from verse 8 down to the end of chapter uh, 7, to verse 25. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do ever been there. And that's when he says, oh, wretched man that I am. And he finally says, who? <laughs> he tried the watts, the list, the box. Who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This focus thing is important. We've got to get this. Now, just sheer self-will, self-dependence, self, 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 okay, Trying to do what's right, that is a religionism, a legalism, whatever you want to call it. It's a lawism. When you awaken to this power, but you still have the wrong goal. And in the name of Jesus, we're just shoving everything into this box. That doesn't allow anybody to be at a different point in their journey. It's forcing people into perpetual boxism or <laughs> perpetual immaturity. In the physical realm, it's not like that. Two-year-olds make two-year-old messes, Right? But none of us get upset for a two-year-old making a two-year-old mess. Now, if a 20-year-old's making the same mess, we do have a problem. <laughs> but see, there, there's different, there's different <laughs> you know, of where people are at and things. And see, if we keep the focus on Jesus, then that's all okay. If the focus is on a box, then it's not okay. Get in this box or you're not spiritual. Now, wait a second. Spirituality is not a box. Spirituality is being rightly related to the spirit. Jesus, the shepherd, the real leader, the person. And friends, when there's the focus, that's when it all comes out right. Because when you focus on Jesus, that's when there's faith in Jesus. And when there's faith in Jesus, he imparts his life to you. And guess what? He always fulfills the law <laughs> the way God intended it, which might be a little different than we thought. But it all plays out right. He never leads us to sin. Never. Amen. And so in my own journey, I was just, you know, self-willed, self-dependent to the hilt, Mr. Pharisee of Pharisees. I am a recovering Pharisee. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I had this awakening to grace, God's power, but the goal was still wrong, my box. You know, my box, and of course, my box is better than anybody else's box. <laughs> so I thought. We're more righteous than anybody. So we thought. <laughs> Terrible. Arrogant. Anyway, then I started a conference. It's called the Holiness Conference. And God brought some good things out of that. I thank the Lord for that. But when we started it, I was in this hybrid of right power, wrong goal. You know what happens? When you focus on holiness, it will evade you because it's the wrong focus. You're back to self-dependence, which means you don't have the power you're talking about. <laughs> but if you focus on Jesus, you access Jesus, and guess what? You'll have holiness as a byproduct. That's where we got to get. And I remember in 1999, God began to open my eyes to that, and it's taken another 20 years for this to crystallize. <laughs> but there's the beauty. You focus on Jesus. You access Jesus. When you access Jesus, you live right. The outcome is there. Now, not as the goal, but as the byproduct. The goal is Jesus. And now it will play out right according to wherever you are in your journey, and that's going to vary from person 
to person. So here's the big point. He said, I thought you would never get there. Me too. All right. Let the Holy Spirit convince you. See, it's not just understanding. You got to be convinced so that you can exercise faith. Let the Holy Spirit convince you that positionally you're 100% righteous. That provisionally your spirit, your new man, is not just declared righteous, it is righteous. Wow. So that by faith, practically, you can access the righteous one. So let the spirit convince you of righteousness through the righteous one. And when you do, then now you can change your thinking. Now you can repent and it not be wishful thinking. Now you can say, oh, I get it. The Spirit has convinced me. I am 100% righteous legally. And that was a nice tune. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a part of me that's actually righteous. So now by faith, I can look to Jesus and access Jesus. He's the righteous one. Friends, it's a matter of falling in love with the person. He's both the power and the goal. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, thank you for truth as it is in Jesus that sets free. And Lord, may we get honest where we're off focus. And Lord, may we place our focus truly on Jesus, understanding, being convinced by you that he's both the power and he's the leader. He's the goal. And Lord, we thank you for personalized leadership personalized love and care for each one of us from our various backgrounds and all of those things in that personal loving savior like a shepherd actually leading us lord may we keep our eyes on you fall in love with you that we might experience you we thank you in jesus name amen